Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 34, Deceptions. Welcome back, Sister Scriptorians. So how's your social media fast going? So when President Nelson gave this challenge to us sisters, I had already done it with the youth, so I thought, no problem. I can do it. I can do it for 10 days. Not a problem. Because I'm not even a big poster on Facebook. Like, I don't like to post things about my family. I'm kind of private that way. And Instagram is kind of a challenge for me. And so... I thought that this was not going to be a problem. And I don't know why this time around it's even more evident, but I turn to social media when I'm bored or when I'm trying to numb out. Do you find you're doing that too? I didn't realize I had so much time to be bored or trying to escape things. And so I'm grateful, President Nelson. I'm grateful for this opportunity to go through this fast again and to realize that I have some changes to make, and I appreciate that. In this week's episode, we are going to focus on the last few verses in chapter 16, verses 33 through 39, and then the first three verses in chapter 17. And the more I ponder upon the sacrifices and the experiences of Lehi and his followers, the more compassion my heart has for them. Could I have done what was required of them? This journey was not easy. We say, I can do hard things. Could I have done this? After the family repented and the Liahona began working again, we don't read that their troubles ended there. In the past, I think I've assumed that the crisis was over, but perhaps it wasn't. We don't know how slick Nephi's bow was. In fact, it could have been really clumsy and awkward. And with the Liahona working once more, and with them carrying on with their journey, I think that I might have assumed that food probably then just came easily to them again. Crisis over. And though Nephi is a classic understater, I think that there may have been some sloppiness on my part too as the reader. Because I think the struggle continued for them. The scriptures say that they traveled for many days, nearly the same course as before. Remember, it was a south-southeastern direction. And after a while, they pitched their tents. It is at this point that we learn that Ishmael dies. And that must have been gut-wrenching for his family. The daughters of Ishmael mourned exceedingly for the loss of their father and also for their afflictions of hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Did Ishmael die as a result of these afflictions? Did he die because of hunger? Over the years, I've always just imagined that he must have died because of old age. But that may not have been the case. I don't know. It appears that the daughters of Ishmael were making the connections in their minds about what exactly is the point to die here in the wilderness of hunger. We might as well just take our chances back in Jerusalem. Because I'm sure for some of them, the purpose of leaving Jerusalem was to live. And now their father was gone. And they murmured against Lehi and Nephi and desired to return back to Jerusalem. And I have compassion upon these daughters of God. Their journey was grueling. 
And the next chapter, Nephi mentions that they had to eat raw meat, for the Lord did not suffer them that they should make much fire as they journeyed. And I know that there have been times in my life when I feel confused because I feel like I am trying my best to keep the Lord's commandments, walking in faith while sacrificing my time and my comfort to serve Him. And yet it feels as if I receive disappointing blow after blow. It literally in those moments does become a wrestle to keep in check the natural man thoughts within me and to consciously choose to remember and then to again accept what the scriptures teach me about God. And while the daughters of Ishmael are vulnerable with grief and they're wrestling with their own spiritual and physical sufferings, Laman steps in and amps things up. That irrational anger of Laman that we mentioned flares. Not irrational because of mourning. We need to mourn. Our bodies and our souls need to go through that mourning process. But Laman, he takes it beyond that. Laman approaches Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael with the intention to slay Lehi. Yeah. Nephi records that he said, let us slay our father and also our brother Nephi. The jealousy that Nephi is moment by moment growing into that ruler and teacher that the angel back in Jerusalem said he would become. That jealousy that has been left unchecked rages now so maliciously that murder is an option in Laman's heart. I have often heard it discussed in Sunday school how How could Laman and Lemuel receive the experiences that they did, such as a visitation from an angel, witnessing the miracle of obtaining the brass plates, walking side by side with the prophet of God, having their frames shake by the power of the Spirit, and seeing with their own eyes an object that appeared out of nowhere in front of their father's tent door? And it has the ability to guide them and to write messages from heaven upon it. How could they deny the hand of God in their journey? And I think along with verse 12 that we find in chapter 2 of 1 Nephi, where Nephi, remember, explains, And thus Laman and Lemuel, being the eldest, did murmur against their father. And they did murmur because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. And you take that and you couple that with verse 38 that we find in chapter 16. I think we have some explanation to those Sunday school inquiries. That these verses explain how powerful our agency is. That we can see and touch and we can experience. But if we choose not to believe, if we choose to not remember and put forth the effort to know God for ourselves, we are powerful enough to fool ourselves, and to fall for our own deceptions. And verse 38 reveals Laman's deceptions. He recruits Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael to kill Lehi, and especially Nephi, by arguing, Nephi says the Lord talks with him, and that angels minister unto him. We know he lies. He tells us things, and he works many things by his cunning arts, that he may deceive our eyes. Essentially, Laman is arguing that Nephi is skilled at deception. Perhaps even mystical practices are taking place, aimed at fooling even the power of their sight. 
Well, I guess that's one way to explain away a heavenly being standing in front of you. And why would Tricky Nephi go to these efforts? Layman has an explanation for that too. It's so Nephi could lead them away into some strange wilderness with the intention of making himself a king and a ruler over them, to do with them as he pleases. And perhaps I'm guilty of some light mocking of Layman, but on his behalf, I can see where his lack of understanding and remembrance has caused a lot of fear to swell up within him. Notice his explanations, though, dismiss God, dismiss the prophet, dismiss the scattering of Israel that he has been taught about from the brass plates. It dismisses all godly direction and intervention and builds a case against the selfish whims of Nephi. Without soft hearts that are striving to know the dealings of God, and with minds that have not been diligent in fortifying themselves against the deceptions of the adversary, these arguments worked. And Laman was successful in stirring up his brethren's heart in anger. This could have been it for this group of starving, grieving, and weary travelers. But the Lord was with Nephi and Lehi. Mercifully, showing how he does deliver those who seek after him. The voice of the Lord is heard, speaking many things to Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael. Nephi writes that they were chastened exceedingly, and I wonder what that looked like. I wonder what it sounded like. My soul can imagine anguish, but I wonder how these rebellious men experienced it. Nephi observes that they turned away their anger, repented of their sins, and unbelievably, the Lord blessed them with food, and they did not perish. So what can we take out of this section of scripture, and what can we liken to our own lives? It's simple. We must strive to know the dealings of God. It is the glaring difference between Team Lehi-Nephi and Team Laman-Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael. It is the way in which life's disappointments and challenges won't act upon us and how we can stand unwavering despite the circumstance. We must come to know who God is. As we discussed in episode 5 and also the bonus episode right after that, knowing the true characteristics of our God and our Savior are absolutely necessary in order to avoid deception. At what degree is the negative self-talk and doubtful thoughts circulating in our minds, blinding our eyes and blocking his voice? How much harder do we personally make our journey because we don't quite understand and know the dealings of God? And so therefore we suffer in confusion and fear. Consider some thoughts about God that may be getting in the way of your progression. We say that we believe God is the creator of all things. Yet how many of us spend time in self-hatred, hating on one of his greatest creations? We know that God is the upholder of all things, yet how often do we miss the opportunity to be his apprentice, the apprentice to the supreme creator, creating our day with him 
our opportunities, our direction, while tapping in to the power source of all things. When we do receive guidance or when an idea comes to us right when we need it, do we hem and haw about who should get credit? Or do we even skip that step and just take all of the credit? Or worse, do we believe that we are abandoned by him and forsaken and believe we just can't? The scriptures repeatedly tell us that God is merciful, yet is shame blocking you from feeling his mercy? Instead, are we hiding behind thoughts that I am of no worth? There is no hope for me. I cannot be forgiven. I've made too many mistakes. I'll never be enough. These deceptions that swirl within our mind deny the essence of who God and our Savior really are. We also believe that God is gracious, that with his enabling power, he intervenes on our behalf. Yet how often do we walk around doubting that he will do so for us? That our efforts are not deserving of his grace. Therefore, we are left feeling weak and powerless. Empowerment that we can have is replaced with thoughts such as, I am limited and I am stuck. Therefore, we are. The scriptures say that God is slow to anger, but is that how you feel? Or have you fallen for the falsehoods that he is punishing, difficult, and because he is, he withholds from you what you need because you're unworthy of it? And though Nephi has gone to great lengths to show us that God is abundant in goodness, can we say that for ourselves? Or do we live with the experience that God doesn't answer my prayers? God ignores me. I'm afraid of God. And therefore I avoid him. I don't see him in my life. And therefore everything that I have is because of my efforts and my strength and my wisdom. Do you know God well enough to accept the truth that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Because if you question the need to pray to read your scriptures, to listen to the prophet, to attend his holy temple, to pay your tithing or to honor his priesthood, you may not fully grasp the confidence that can come to you in knowing he is unchanging. These have always been his ways. Imagine the burden that would be lifted off your shoulders if you believed all that God says he is, accepting that he is a God of truth. If you accepted he cannot lie, how much space would you free up in your mind and in your heart? You would no longer be split between faith and doubt. You trust the God of truth and therefore you carry on. And we are told that he is not a respecter of persons. Yet how often do you covet what others have, believing that it is evidence that God loves them more than you? How often do we despise others because we are not like someone else and we worry that God not only loves them more, but he forgives them more, overlooks their failings, pours blessings upon them, and spares them from hard things. These thoughts that turn into feelings of jealousy, contempt, self-hatred, and bitterness surely stand in our way of believing that God is love. In my studying, I have found observations from humans about humans. 
who do experience a lack of love while in their developmental years. They experience insecure attachments, undeveloped emotional intelligence, impaired sense of self, lack of trust, difficulties with boundaries, choosing toxic relationships, increased fear of failure, depression and anxiety, and extreme sensitivity. These are our spiritual developmental years. And though we cannot see Father, He has not abandoned us. Yet we see these exact ailments creep up in our lives and really in our society when we don't truly believe that God loves us. If we don't understand and feel God's love for us, we will not be attached to Him. We won't mind if we stray. We will not place importance on building a relationship with Him or even recognize that there is a relationship in need of being built. God's love shows us that we don't need to be victims to the appetites of our mortality, that we can choose patience over anger, compassion over condemnation, temperance over hunger, and service over greed. We can develop emotional intelligence by relying on Him who is not affected by the natural man, but who had the ability to overcome the world. A woman in my ward testified that when she heard the missionary discussions, her world changed when she discovered that she was a child of God. Her identity became solidified. She discovered what her purpose in life was. If we don't know that God loves us, why would we trust him? Why would we assume that he has our best interest in mind? I would stray from him. I would second guess him. I would be looking for ways that he is trying to entrap me. I would not allow him to get the best of me. But his love puts all of these defense mechanisms to rest. And then I can rest in his love. If I didn't accept that God loved me, I would then see his boundaries as restraints. I would despise his restrictions. Rebellion and caginess would rise within me. I wouldn't see the relationship between obedience and my love for him. I wouldn't understand modesty or chastity or the role of God's daughters or the role of his priesthood, God's power here on earth, nor any other principle that would have boundaries and standards attached to them. And if I didn't believe that God was love, what characteristics in men would I be attracted to? What level of respect would I require others to treat me with? How would I show up for them? If my relationship with God is lacking, what pattern would I emulate here on earth? What value would I place on relationships, healthy or unhealthy? Would I value it? Would I have the discipline to cultivate relationships? Or would I see others as objects to be used for my benefit and then discarded? God says that we have infinite worth. But how many of us feel unworthy of that love because we can name all of the things that we aren't perfect at. We've equated perfection or no mistakes to being worthy of love. Our fear of failure then becomes heightened because of this warped belief that we must qualify for God's love. How would your life literally change 
if you let go of these limiting beliefs and just accepted that Father loves you because He does. So then how would our depression and our anxiety be lifted? Both the circumstantial and the medical. The pressures that drag us down and affect our capacity to function can be a burden to carry. But when we accept that God loves us, that burden is no longer just ours. It's his as well. He's going to carry it with us. And the benefit is he has the power that we can tap into. And finally, when I know that God loves me, I recognize when I'm getting a little silly. (laughs) When the pity party is becoming a buzzkiller. I know God loves me and that loving people don't pick on people. And because I know that he loves me, there must be something lovable about me. And I can see that I then am capable of love. I can love others and not become sensitive to their inclinations. I'm not wounded by their hurt acting out. I can have compassion, give them space to sort it out, and not have it redefine me because God's good with me. Can you see? Can you see how powerful our agency is? Simply by the thoughts that we choose to entertain and have linger longer than they ought to, to the point that they have unpacked and taken over the guest bedroom in our minds. These thoughts and deceptions can move us by degrees away from Father and from our Savior. Our misperceptions of who he is can prevent us from seeing his manifestations. Our lack of understanding his dealings and why he does the things he does can cause us to lose faith in the journey and can create a desire for us to return back to Jerusalem. Now, don't be hard on yourself. It is a life's work to encounter affliction and to take it and to examine it from all angles and discover the godly way of responding to what lays before you. But I hope I've provided you a cheat sheet, a tool or a help in order to be able to do just that, to help you maintain perspective in him and to know how to believe him. And before I close, Let me explain why I have chosen this week's challenge. So back in my previous life, life before motherhood, I worked with families that struggled in the most despairing of circumstances. Because of the nature of my job, I could not share the feelings of my heart that I knew that they were in need of hearing. They needed to know that God loved them. Does that sound too simplistic? We're trained to think so. We are trained that complicated ailments need complicated solutions. However, I would often find myself driving home from either court or a therapy session or one of my clients' homes, and I would turn off the radio, and I would sing primary songs because I needed to be lifted. I needed to remember that God loved me and he loved the children that I just left behind. And I would sing, I am a child of God. I would sing a child's prayer. Heavenly Father, are you really there? Do you hear and answer every child's prayer? Sometimes hymns such as How Great Thou Art. Or hymns that I could picture the movements of my Savior. I heard him come. 
I saw his very face. I needed reminding of the love that he has for each one of us, even when the world appears dark. And today those songs have expanded. One of the songs is the song, The Miracle. That song has the power to fill an entire primary room with love in my meeting house as the primary children sing truths about their Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is a God of miracles. Nothing is at all impossible to him. But I know this, of all his miracles, the most incredible must be the miracle that rescues me. We all need reminding, and these reminders, communicated through music, have the power to settle us and to help us keep keeping on. This week, strive to observe your thoughts and reframe them with the knowledge of who you know God to be. Listen to songs that will fill you with reminders of the love that God brings into your life when you are questioning, when you are grieving, when you are lonely, or when you are tired. Nourish your soul with these truths so that you will not be tempted to turn back and instead you will be emboldened to journey on. Have a good day.